0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Was Shakespeare a snob? His plays are peppered with characters from right across the social spectrum, from kings and nobility down to servants, soldiers and shepherds, But how are those at the bottom of that hierarchy portrayed? Are they, in the words of King Lear, just poor naked wretches? Theatre director and writer Stephen Unwin considers this question in a new book that explores the Bard's working characters. And Rhiannon Davis spoke to him to find out how far these figures reflected the reality of living and working in Elizabethan England.
2: Being a theatre director, what perspective did this offer you when writing about Shakespeare's working people?
3: The funny thing about this book is I've been writing it on and off for 40 years, literally 40 years since I was a student and I got the kind of idea for it. As a theatre director, and I've directed lots and lots of Shakespeare, but lots of other things as well, you're always trying to understand the full range of life of the characters of the story of the drama that you're presenting. Um, And what I think I found is that in the way that Shakespeare was largely regarded, it was about a, a narrow range of characters, the famous characters, who on the whole were the aristocratic or royal figures. I mean, all if you stop somebody in the street and said, give me some Shakespeare characters, they'd say Romeo and Hamlet. And they're always the upper classes. But when you're working in the theatre, you've got a messenger, you've got a soldier, you've got a prostitute, you've got a shepherd, you've got all these other figures. And I think I found myself intrigued by who were they. And to what extent was Shakespeare writing about the people who he saw and he knew, and how much respect, if you like, was he giving these these figures. And that's part of a broader question which has happened for all kinds of complicated reasons, I think, since the 400 years since Shakespeare wrote these plays, which is the kind of assumption that a playwright, that a genius, will have a sort of contempt for working people. And what really struck me about that, and there's all sorts of notions which happen in literary criticism, in the theatre, in all sorts of assumptions about that contempt. And it just struck me that it was completely ahistorical, (laughs) incredibly unlikely, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, one of them is that Shakespeare wrote for a popular audience, or, or certainly for a mixed audience. And so You sort of think, well, if he wrote for such a mixed audience, such a a social range, he's not going to insult them (laughs) by present. You know, he's a commercial playwright; he's trying to make a living. Why would he? Why would he insult his audience, his his popular audience, by saying that they were stupid or hopeless or simply there for comic relief? That's a very long answer, but it's this funny mixture of for me of practical experience of working in the theatre combined with a historical perspective both of the 17th century 16th and 17th century but also of the changes in attitude and the the, the changes in, in notions of class that have happened since
2: so would you say it's fair to say then that rather than Shakespeare himself being a snob we're the snobs we're snobbish in how we view him and his work
3: Perhaps I think that there are a number of things which have which have obscured our vision, if you like. One of which is a narrow Marxist view, and obviously some of the Marxists are important in this book, but a narrow Marxist view, which is that if his figures are not the heroes of the revolution, <laughs> then Shakespeare is obviously. Being contemptuous of them, and I want to say, well, hang on. If you look at if you look at history, many times in the past, you know, working people have, you know, sometimes heroes of the revolution, sometimes very worried about revolution, sometimes reactionary, sometimes concerned about change, sometimes embracing change. So I think that that's I think that that's one perspective which I think has has limited our understanding what what i prefer to to see with with shakespeare in that particular area is that he's he, he's a realist so when it comes to working people people's concerns about the conditions of their lives there's a wonderful mixture of opinions some people looking forward to a better world a dream of a better world in the future some people looking back to what they thought was a better world in the past, a golden age in the past, and yet people living in the in the present dealing with those sorts of contradictions. And it seems to me that that's you know that's what you see right now in the in the Brexit debate. You know, some people thinking, well, it could be so much better because it was so much better. <laughs> you know, it's this brilliant thing about Shakespeare that it's not. It hasn't got the judgmentalism that we, one way or another, bring bring to the party. There's another interesting area, I think, about um, which is a, a confusion, which strangely is is evident in one word, which is the word "idiot." But that the word "idiot" to the Elizabethans and Jacobeans meant a person of no social sta- of limited social standing. And so somebody said, everybody, except for a tiny number, would have been regarded as idiots, because they didn't have social standing. But because of what then happened in attitude to intelligence and intellectual ability, this kind of weird confusion emerged, or or change, if you like, which said that when that Shakespeare, when he says a tale told by an idiot, or when people are referred to as clowns, they're obviously intellectually very limited. That they've got learning disabilities, but they don't. What he's talking about is a class difference, not not an intellectual difference. Now, of course, there's a difference in learning, and that's evident, but it's not. A, it's not a difference in, in somehow innate ability if you like innate it's not it's not innate and if anything what Shakespeare does is he he sort of deconstructs power and class he shows for example I mean brilliantly he show always shows that the king is just a a man who's going to die and you know is subject to all the usual things that all human beings are subject to so that what he what Shakespeare's doing all the time is he's sort of deconstructing class he's he's unpacking it but he is obsessed and fascinated by class distinction. So that brings me on to a sort of related issue that's happened, I think, in, in the theatre, but in culture, which says we're all middle class now, which of course is a lie. But the, what then happens is that then Hamlet becomes just a middle class bloke living in, in Tufnell Park. And then you forget that he's a prince then you forget that he has power. Then you forget his, the, the, the particular nature of his education, the particular nature of his opinions. But actually what I think Shakespeare's writing is he's saying this is the stru- these are the structures of, of power. And he, he's laying them open on this open stage. And I think that's a very important insight, very important thing to bear in mind. What's happening there... What I mean what do I mean by that in the modern theatre with electric light you put a light on the most on the person who speaks the most and other people are semi in the dark the audience are told who to look at I'm caricaturing that a bit but I think you understand what I mean whereas in the elizabethan theatre there is no electric light there is no you have to look at this so everybody who appears on stage is actually of equal interest of equal humanity of equal three dimensionality they're just like oh that person's interesting that person's interesting so that the very act of putting them on a stage on an open stage like the globe was does two things is it deconstructs the powerful and it elevates the powerless it gives the powerless a voice they're given a chance to express their views and the powerful actually have to rub shoulders with the powerless in a kind of wonderful sort of democratizing way. And I'm not, democracy is perhaps the wrong word, but, a, but a, in a sort of strange process of egalitarianism. Going back to history, if you put Shakespeare, which I think you should, between the great theological, psychological, emotional crisis of The reformation in the 1530s and the the dissolution of the monasteries and all of those huge changes if you put it standing between that and the civil war of the 1640s with the great sort of well again theological but also political social drama of that so there's this playwright standing between these two great moments the sort of the two most significant moments in British history, in my mind, or anyway, whatever, but hugely important. And that everything changed in those two great crises. In fact, you could say they're all part of the same crisis. But those are crises about how people live together, what the duties we have to each other, what the structures of society are. They include the execution of the king, you know, 100 years before the French, more than 100 years before the French, there he is writing in a cleverer people than, than than me have called you know a changing, restless world, and I think that's absolutely right that it is a changing, restless world, and that he's writing plays which are which are full of who's going to own the future, <laughs> whose future is it, who's going to own the past, whose whose version of the past matters. What are the values that connect a society? What are the things that tear a society apart? And these guys, guys and girls, and there are huge numbers of them, have an incredibly important role to play. Incredibly important role to play. And then in a funny kind of way, if you turn your back on them or ignore them, the plays shrink, they're so small. But when you when you look at them and have them in there, that you, you see what what a vast realistic panorama of life it is, because it understands social class.
2: And was Shakespeare unique in this at the time then? Were other playwrights really engaging with all social classes?
3: Some of the other playwrights were, some of them weren't. There's a guy called Thomas Hayward, who wrote what were called citizen plays, and those did try to engage with social class. Uh, Of course, they all engage with social class. You can't really write about England without engaging the social class. I think what Shakespeare does is he brings this strangely tender, humane three-dimensionality to his figures. But just going back to perceptions and how we look at this stuff, there's been a very interesting thing is that the last 30, 40 years, Shakespeare studies... For understandable reasons, have been absolutely dominated by questions about uh, gender, sexuality, uh, religion sometimes, but actually, this kind of very primary thing about class has been neglected.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
4: Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, historyextra dot slash History Extra.
2: That's really interesting that you say that the questions of gender, sexuality and class have been separated in this way because they're so interrelated. I mean, you discuss gender in, in your book. There's a chapter devoted to working women. And this is something I found really interesting is Shakespeare's portrayal of working women and how some people say that he's a sexist. Can you expand a bit more on that for us?
3: so in in a way the the portrayal of the women is is one of the most complicated things it has to be understood that the women were played by boys or men so inevitably straight away there is a a level of grotesque well not grotesque but distance you know it's got it's got this peculiar this particular twist but what i think shakespeare does with the women is like all of his characters he's a realist he's he's writing about people trying to make a living there's a fascinating thing i think about his portrayal of sorry to say this you you asked me about women in general but you know it's 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 an element in it his portrayal of sex workers he's completely not prurient he's not interested in it in a kind of sexual way he's interested in it as a as how you know is the degradation and how and how do these people try to make a living so there's all the time this kind of interest interest in ordinariness interest in 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 kind of and that the, these figures whether it's the women or all of them actually provide a kind of real world ballast against which the aspirations of the aristocracy and the monarchy look sort of yeah fine but (laughs) it it provides a kind of skepticism it provides a kind of materialism and a kind of and frankly you know as i think we all know from history the moment that the leader loses touch with everyday realities is the moment that they they start being terrible leaders
2: okay so you've mentioned a lot that shakespeare is this realist he's creating complex three-dimensional characters so is it fair to say then that they are a really true depiction of what it would be like to be an Elizabethan worker? Or are there times when he does slip into stereotypes and he's not faithfully reflecting reality?
3: Look, I think what he's doing is that these the, the plays are like genre paintings. So there'll be a shepherd and the shepherd will have a version of the classical shepherd in him, okay, from Theocritus or Virgil or whatever. But then Shakespeare will surprise us by little realistic touches which bring which make him more tangible and contemporary than you would think but but in a way that's what he's doing with the aristocrats as well you know hamlet is the revenge hero which is the stereotype who then is not very good at doing revenge do you sort of mean but you have to the audience knows both so there are of course these endless layers of culture it's not it's not modern naturalistic writing, but it is what's called I, I would call realistic writing, and that's a the difference. There is a there is always this these touches which make us understand the kind of how the person earns a living, what that takes, what that imposes on the person. While at the same time it 's not quite stereotype isn 't quite the right word, as I say genre I think is is a, is a better way of putting it there There are a series of prototypes underneath it okay so there's there's uh, uh, there 's the Bible the Bible the Bible you know as a work of literature, which is what I see it as is extraordinary the number of working people who are in the Bible, you know particularly the new testament ex- you know endlessly that christianity at its heart has this this religion of is a religion of poverty i mean gone corrupted and all sorts of things uh, so that's prototype one then there's prototype two which is the the, the the roman the classical world which of course has its its workers its poor people its its breadth of vision then there's the english folk tradition which Shakespeare is drawing on, which, you know, which is the people in the woods, the, the spirits, the... But that's, that's again, it's a perspective of a, a lower-class perspective. And then I suppose the fourth prototype is the English history, the Hundred Years' War, the, the chronicles of soldiers, sailors, people fighting the French. That, again, has got a breadth of vision an inclusive social vision which isn't just about the ruling elite so he draws on all of those literary and cultural received figures if you like but all the time it just provides that little bit of spice little bit of detail little bit of flavor which by which they kind of spring to immediate life but it's not, it's not just that these figures are just like you would have seen on the streets all the time. It, it, it's both, because it's, it's very sophisticated art, of course.
2: And thinking about that spice that you mentioned, could we say that comes from his own personal experience? Because this is something that you touched on earlier in the conversation that I wanted to return to, how his experience of working people, particularly his experience of rural England, how does that colour his plays and his work?
3: Well, of course... All we have is the plays we don't we don't know what he was what he thought, but it's impossible to imagine the young playwright from stratford upon avon ignorant or entirely blind to what is going on all around him all the time everywhere he looks you 've got this society in extraordinary change you 've got poor people tramping the roads you 've got beggars you've got you know, it's and you've got craftsmen everywhere you look so the aristocracy and the nobility and the gentry is a ti- and the royal royalty of course is a tiny proportion of society. the vast majority are working people of one kind or another, so you know that's that's everywhere so he he can't not have noticed that but then what I think is interesting is that then this great public art form the theater is a great public art form so it 's not. It's not poetry. It's not not closeted poetry. It's not painting miniatures. It's the great public art form. To theatres where they think at their their very height, 3,000 people would come to a performance. It's an enormous number in a city which is bursting apart at the seams. Increasingly, the social issues that that we know happen in, in big cities. You know, and the theatre is sort of standing in the middle of that. Well, I mean, it's on the South Bank, but it's to all intents and purposes. It's the kind of fulcrum of the social energies all over the place. And they, My point is that they walk across the stage, across this big platform stage. There's an interesting thing, which is, is rebellion, which does happen. And there's a, there's a character called Jack Cade, who's an extraordinary figure in, in one of the very early plays henry the sixth part two and jack cade is this sometimes people say jack cade was written to for shakespeare to show that working people should never rebel because he's a popular rebel but what shakespeare does instead and the guy appears in about six or seven scenes in the play so it's a big big story arc is what shakespeare does is he shows both why jack cade has a grievance and why the people who support him have a grievance and rebellion was incredibly common then he shows how what Jack Cade is facing is absolutely violent suppression from the ruling class right and then Shakespeare shows that he in response will use violence he's both a rabble rouser but he's a rabble who's got a re- who's got a cause to be roused, and then Shakespeare does this brilliant thing right at the end at his death. He makes us care about him, he makes us feel for him, and you realize that this charismatic figure is now wandering through the countryside. His his rebellion has been defeated. He's wandering through the countryside, starving to death, and he tries to beg a little bit of something to eat. You know, and he ends up and he gets killed. So, so what I'm trying to say is that the way we should look at uh, uh, at the past is look at it in contradictory terms and that Shakespeare is doing exactly the same thing. So, what I'm trying to say is that in the same way that we need to look at our, you know, more modern history dialectically and contradictorily, and so, and say both and. So, Shakespeare's doing that about these characters and actually about all his characters. He's saying they are both have a very good cause to be fed up, uh, uh, and and that there is also there's a charismatic energy. It's not surprising that he gets people to follow him. And yet at the same time, working people know that a time of disruption can be really bad for them.
2: I couldn't end this interview without asking about your title, Poor Naked Wretches. And over the course of our conversation, listeners might think that perhaps... That's a bizarre title because we've talked about the complexity, the realism. Why did you choose Poor Naked
3: Wretches? Well, Poor Naked Wretches, it's called Poor Naked Wretches, Shakespeare's Working People. There's a very, very great moment in King Lear when Lear prays to his subjects, his imaginary subjects, and he realises that he has done nothing for them. And he says, and I'm going to read it, it's five lines, Poor naked wretches, where soe'er you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Well, there we go. There's Shakespeare, our contemporary, when we're all having to pay through the nose for electricity and gas. So that what there is at the heart of this, it's not quite pity, it's empathy, in the writing and that lear who's never thought about the poor in his sub kingdom before sort of coming to a realization i mean he says i've taken too little care of this he hasn't noticed it
0: that was stephen unwin his book poor naked wretches is published by reaction books and is out now thanks for listening to the history extra podcast this podcast was produced by jack Bateman.